Well, good morning again. Go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 13 to 23 this morning, but we're going to just kind of start again in chapter 1 of Matthew. A little bit of a review this morning. The, the early chapters of Matthew have been showing us who Jesus is. Matthew wants us to understand who Jesus is before he begins to explain what Jesus did. And the way that Matthew does this is by connecting Jesus with what's been written in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the expectation of the Old Testament Scriptures. And the first way Matthew does this as he really is speaking to the Jews here is that he shows us the genealogy of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew tells us right up front that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised son of David, son of Abraham. The Christ is the one through whom God's plan of salvation would be accomplished, and all of salvation history looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he was adopted into David's line through Mary's husband, Joseph. And three times in chapter 1, Jesus is called Christ. At the the beginning of the genealogy, he is called Christ, Jesus Christ. In verse 16, at the end of the genealogy, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then again in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. And as Christ, Jesus is the rightful heir of David's throne. He is the king of Israel. And his name, the angel explained, was to be called Jesus in verse 21 of chapter 1 because, as the angel explained, he will save his people from their sins. Now remember, Jesus means Yahweh saves. And so Jesus was to have this name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. In, in other words, what Matthew is doing is, is he's showing us this connection between Jesus and Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He would save. Yahweh will save. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And Matthew makes that connection between Jesus and God even more explicit in verse 22 when he says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus' people, those that he saves, are going to call him Emmanuel. They're going to call him God with us. And verse 23, that's a quote from Isaiah 7.14. And in the context of Isaiah chapter 7, it was a prophecy to the house of David that even though the nation would go into exile, a child would be born, a virgin-born child would come, and this child would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Prince of Peace. He would establish God's kingdom forever. He would deliver God's people from the exile, and he would even reverse the curse of creation. Let's just go back to Isaiah chapter 11 here in that in that context of this quote from chapter 7 go back to Isaiah chapter 11 and I want to just show you how the Christ is going to even undo the curse 
that was on creation because of sin. Look at Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Of course, this shoot is the Messiah. The one who is talking about, that Isaiah has been talking about, this child who is called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie, shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so here we see that the Messiah who comes to shoot from the stump of Jesse is going to make the earth into such a place that lions and snakes and cobras are no longer dangerous in all the earth as, as the Messiah restores creation to its original intent. And in showing us these things, we can see that Matthew expects really his readers to understand and see the connections with what we now call the Old Testament Scriptures. Matthew has a profound understanding of Scripture, and he's been leading us to see these connections all through the beginning of his Gospel. The quote in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, and we can go back to Matthew here. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6, the priests say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least of the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And the priests there quote Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, along with 1 Samuel 5, 2. And, and that quote there shows that Jesus the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, but it also connects Jesus with David's line as the king of Israel, the one, the ruler who would come and shepherd God's people Israel. And even more, when we looked at the context in Micah, we saw that this ruler was from of old, from ancient days. And who is it who from ancient of days could shepherd God's people in the strength of Yahweh? Only the Messiah, only Jesus Christ. And so we see that Messiah is both God and man. And as man, Jesus is the son of David, David, able to sit on David's throne. And as God, he is from of old, from eternal days. Micah 5, 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. And what all this meant for Matthew is that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. We saw that last week in chapter 2, 
verses 1 to 12, that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. The Magi came from the East, chapter 2 and verse 2, saying, where is, is he who is born King of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. And in chapter 2 and verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in our text today, Matthew will complete the introduction with three statements on how Jesus' early life fulfilled prophecy. And all of these fulfillments involve the question of where Jesus lived. We've seen who Jesus is, and now the question seems to be, where is he from? God sovereignly orchestrated everything as Joseph and Mary moved from Bethlehem to Egypt and then back to Israel where they finally settled in Nazareth. And all of this, Matthew tells us, fulfilled Scripture. Now these Scriptures, as we're going to look at them, aren't fulfilled in the way that we might expect. And often people use the section that we're going to look at today to to argue that Matthew doesn't interpret Scripture the way that we do. They, They think that Matthew is finding a deeper meaning in the Old Testament, one that wasn't there to begin with. But what I hope to do today as we look at this text is is to show that Matthew handles Scripture better than many people give him credit for. Matthew isn't trying to reinterpret the Old Testament. He isn't trying to change the meaning of the Old Testament. But he's showing that what happened in the coming of Christ brings what the prophets spoke about to fulfillment, to fruition. And these verses then are really foundational for what's called our hermeneutics, the way that we interpret and understand Scripture. These verses show us one more time in the introduction here that Jesus is the promised one, that he is a new David who will rule God's kingdom, that he is a new Moses who will deliver God's people, that he's a new mediator who's going to bring in the new covenant, and he is the Messiah, the, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. You see, what Matthew wants us to see or needs us to see And remember, Matthew here is talking to people who knew the Old Testament very, very well. And what he wants us to see is that Jesus is the Messiah, even though some of the things that the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would do aren't going to be fulfilled until Jesus' second coming. And by connecting Jesus' ministry so closely with Scripture, Matthew is trying to overcome the greatest objection that his Jewish readers would have. And that is, they would wonder, if Jesus is really our Messiah, if Jesus is really the King, where is His reign? Where, why are we still under Roman occupation? Where is His rule? Where is the, the promises fulfilled to Israel? And Matthew's going to show that Israel rejected their Messiah, but that He will one day fulfill all that is written with another generation of Israel at His second coming. But until that time, until Jesus returns, Matthew tells us at the end of his gospel that our mission is to reach all nations. And so as we look at our text this morning, we're going to see three providential events that prove Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 13 to 15, the flight to Egypt. Secondly, we'll see the massacre in Bethlehem in verses 16 to 18. And then we'll see the return to Nazareth in verses 19 to 23. Three providential events that prove Jesus is the Messiah. 
And as we read our text this morning, notice how each section ends with a statement about what was spoken by the prophets and how it's been fulfilled. These prophecies, as we go to these texts, these prophecies were written about 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years written by different prophets and recorded in different books of the Old Testament. But notice, each section ends with this statement of fulfillment. Let's read our text there, starting in verse 13, Matthew chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise! And take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, as I said already, this passage neatly divides into three sections, each centering on a specific location and each ending with the fulfillment of Scripture. Now, what's been more difficult this week, the dividing the passage is really clear, but what's been difficult is really to see two things. One is how Matthew is using these passages that he quotes. The Old Testament verses that he points to aren't straightforward predictions of the Messiah. And the second thing that's been difficult is, is asking this question, how do we apply this? How is this meant to impact our lives? And I think there's really two ways. Number one, we need to recognize the the cosmic battle going on here. Throughout Scripture, we've seen these moments where the seed of the woman, the promised deliverer, was threatened. And there was real danger in this text, in this situation, to Jesus and his family. But God protected him. God's protection of Jesus in this passage is him accomplishing our salvation. God is working providentially here to overcome Satan who is empowering Herod. And and God is accomplishing our salvation through the Messiah. And the second impact that Matthew intends is really to connect Jesus with the Old Testament messianic promises. With very, very few words, Matthew is pointing us to deep wells, his Brief quotations say a ton about who Jesus is. And then the application for us then is simply to see these connections and recognize Jesus for who he is. 
And so let's get into it then. Three providential events that prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Number one, we see the flight to Egypt. The flight to Egypt. Verse 13 again, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. They who had departed refers to the Magi from verse 12. They had come to worship Jesus Christ and the star had led them to Jesus. They worshiped him. They offered him their treasures in verse 11. In verse 12, then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Magi departed or when the Magi departed or after the Magi departed, then Joseph also has a dream. The Magi are warned in a dream, and then Joseph was warned in a dream. It could have been the same night, or it could have been maybe one night later, but these two dreams would have happened fairly close in time. And so again, verse 13, When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Herod is about to search. And Herod is, remember, only five or six miles north of Bethlehem in Jerusalem. And he probably only waited a couple of days for the Magi to return. And when he saw that they did not return in verse 16, he became furious. But Joseph, he got up probably that very night, probably the very night that he had a dream, he got up and he took the child and his mother by night to Egypt. The angel said, rise and take, and Joseph rose and took. And again, we see that Joseph was very obedient to God. He was a godly man who obeyed exactly what God had revealed to him. Now, traveling by night was exceptional in that day. They didn't have flashlights. They didn't have paved roads. This would have been a dangerous journey, and this probably shows the urgency of the angel's message as he tells Joseph to rise and take the child and flee to Egypt. This would have been a traumatic event for Mary and the baby. Egypt was a long journey away, but it was a safe place for the Jews in that day. About one million Jews lived in Egypt around that time, and uh, and they remained there in verse 15 until the death of Herod. Now, Herod died in 4 BC, so the family stay in Egypt likely wasn't very long, maybe only a couple of months. But Matthew tells us they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the prophet who gave this prophecy is Hosea, and this comes from Hosea chapter 11. And you could go ahead and turn to the book of Hosea if you want. The family is, is just going into Egypt here, but Matthew puts this here because the focus of this section is on Egypt. And when they come out of Egypt, the focus is really going to be on Nazareth. And so Matthew puts this quotation here, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the way this prophecy is fulfilled is probably not the way that we typically think about prophecy being fulfilled. When we think about fulfillment of prophecy, we likely think about it in the sense we saw in Matthew 1.23, where Isaiah 7.14 predicted that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And when Mary, a virgin, conceived and bore a son, who was Emmanuel, God with us, the prophecy was fulfilled. 
But here in Hosea 11, there's no prediction happening. Hosea is not predicting the future or even saying anything necessarily about the Messiah that he would come out of Egypt. This is not a direct prediction and fulfillment, but Matthew is right to say that Hosea spoke about is fulfilled in this event. So let's go to Hosea and let's see how. Hosea, if you don't, if you haven't found it already in your Bible, it's the first of what we typically call the minor prophets right after Daniel and before the other minor prophets. And Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, is what Matthew quotes. And so let's start there. Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This verse is talking about Israel and the Exodus. God loved Israel, so he brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. The son of Hosea 1.11 is actually Israel, not the Messiah. Out of When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel is the son. And what Hosea is actually drawing from here is Exodus 4 and verse 22. Just listen to Exodus 4.22. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, God saying to Pharaoh, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now the question that's going to help us really understand what Hosea is doing is to ask this, how is Hosea using Exodus 4.22? Hosea, as we think about this book, is primarily a book of judgment. God is going to judge Israel because of their idolatry, because of their false worship. In fact, if we just read Hosea chapter 11, we'll get a good sense of the whole book. And so let's just go ahead and read this whole context. Hosea 11, starting at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Remember, Ephraim is Israel. I took them up by the arms, uh, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. And so God brought Israel out of Egypt because his love for them. 
But the more God did for them, the more the people went astray and they worshipped the Baals and the, and other idols. Therefore, in verse 5, they would be exiled to Assyria in judgment. The sword would, would rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates. Verse 6 and 7 describes this judgment that God is going to send on Israel because of their idolatry. But because God loves Israel, He will not give them utterly to destruction. God would send them into exile, not to Egypt this time, but now to Assyria. But He promises in this context that He will bring them back. And so in verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? God is yearning with compassion for His people. He says, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Now, Adma and Zeboim are unknown places, but every other time in Scripture where those two places appear, they appear next to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what God is saying here is, because of my love for you, Israel, I'm not going to utterly destroy you like I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, He's going to bring them back to their homes in verse 11, in what we could call a new exodus. And so there's going to be an exile, but there's going to be a new exodus. And in the context of the book of Hosea, this new exodus is going to be led by a new leader like Moses. Go to Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, sorry, Hosea 1.11. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. One head, one leader would lead a reunited Israel. And the, and the nation would no longer be divided between Israel in the north and Judah in the south, but under this one leader they would come together. And from our perspective in history, this has still not occurred. But when this happens... It's also going to involve the salvation of God's people. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of children of Israel will, shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Israel is going to be saved on that day. They're going to be children of the li living God. Look at Hosea 2 and verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will be, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so this is speaking of a day when Israel will no longer be at war. The weapons of war would be abolished in the land, and Israel is now going to be faithful to the Lord. In other words, they're going to be saved. They're going to know the Lord on this day. They're going to be married to the Lord in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy, and they will know the Lord in that day. Now this is the one thing that Israel always lacked. Look at Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. 
For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. But Hosea, despite the fact that that's the current state of Israel when Hosea speaks, Hosea looks forward to a day when this would no longer be the case, when Israel would now walk in steadfast love and mercy and they would know the Lord. Hosea chapter 3 and verse 4, just back a few verses. Hosea chapter 3 and verse 4, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And then verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Verse 4 really describes Israel really to this day. There's no king or prince. There's no sacrifice or pillar. There's no temple. There's no ephod that the priests had. And there is no household gods. But there's a day, Hosea says, that's coming when the children of Israel will return to the Lord and to David their king, and they will come in fear of the Lord and to His goodness. And what Hosea is saying is that there will be a new exodus under a new leader who is like a new Moses and a new David. God loves Israel, therefore He won't give up on them. One day He's going to cause them to return to Him. And so Matthew picks up on this theme and he, he knows that Jesus is this new ruler that Hosea pointed to. And he also ties this together with, with the idea of Israel as God's son. Now in, in the Old Testament in Scripture, there's really two entities that are referred to as God's son. Israel is called God's son. Very few times in Scripture. But the other person who is called the Son of God is actually the Messiah. And one place where, where it's easy to show this is in Psalm chapter 2. And so let's go and look at Psalm chapter 2. And Matthew is, has got all of these Scriptures in his mind as he's pointing us to Hosea. Psalm chapter 2, and we see the Messiah here is also called the Son of God. And it starts there, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's Yahweh, and against His anointed, that's the Messiah, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The Messiah here talking to the Lord, recognizing that God sees him as his son and that one day he is going to be the king who is going to control the entire earth. Look at verse 7 there again. I will tell the decree, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 12 is this warning. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Another place where the Davidic king is called the son is in the new, is in the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel 7, 12. Listen to this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking to David here. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. And so Israel is God's son and the Davidic king, the Messiah, is also God's son. The king, as the son of God, represents the people And so Jesus then coming out of Egypt as God's son reminded Matthew of Hosea and all that he spoke about it. In fact, if we go back to the book of Matthew now and look at chapter 3, this is the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Matthew is saying then by this, this little quote, out of Egypt I called my son. He's saying, here he is, Israel. Here is your king. Here is your Messiah. Here is your Savior. And what was required when the Savior came? What was Israel to do when this Messiah came? According to Hosea 14, just listen. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In other words, repentance was what is required. When when the king came, Israel was to repent. They were to come to the Lord with words of repentance. Take away our iniquity. We will no longer worship false gods. And that's exactly what Jesus and John the Baptist do when they come. They call Israel to repentance. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah or Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, because we've read through the book of Matthew and we know what happens, we know that Israel won't repent, at least not at, at, at Jesus' first coming. But Matthew is saying that the one that Hosea spoke of is here. He is the leader of a new exodus if you would repent. And so this was the, the flight to Egypt. The second providential event then that proves that Jesus is the Messiah is number two, the massacre in Bethlehem, verses 16 to 18. The massacre in Bethlehem. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so Herod at some point realized that the Magi weren't returning 
They had deceived him. And so instead of just having one child killed, he was really all the time hoping to kill this child. And, and, and that was his plan from the beginning. But now he decides, now that he's been deceived, he decides to kill all the children in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. And so he goes beyond what was necessary to ensure that he doesn't miss the born king in his evil act. Two years of age and under would cover the age and and probably more than cover the age from what he had heard from the wise men. And the surrounding region, the the whole surrounding region would, would cover the location. And it was only the boys who were a threat as king. And so again, Herod was a very, very wicked man. Some of us have children two and under, and we can relate to how sad this would be to have our children murdered like this. Bethlehem was a, a small town, and they estimate that, that it would probably be 20 children or less who would have been killed in, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. And what we see then is Herod has become like another Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh tried to kill all the male children in Egypt, and Herod now is trying to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, in the same way that Moses escaped from Pharaoh, Jesus escapes from Herod. And in verse 17, Matthew tells us this was fulfilled, or then was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now normally, when Matthew tells us that something has happened in order to fulfill something, or, or so, he usually uses the word so that, or he says in order to fulfill or so that, what, what happened would be fulfilled. But only here and one other place he says, then was fulfilled. And the only other time he says, then was fulfilled is when, when, when was fulfilled the, the betrayal of Judas in Matthew 27 and verse 9. And so Matthew says here, what he's trying to do is, is to, to mitigate the, the, um, the idea that, that God caused this evil event to happen. And so scripture was fulfilled, but Matthew separates God from the evil actions of Herod and Judas. They fulfilled scripture according to God's plan, but they committed the evil action of their own doing. Now the prophecy that is spoken of by Jeremiah is in Jerem, or, or by, is by Jeremiah, and it's in Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. Again, again, Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 31 and look at what Jeremiah is saying in his context. Jeremiah 31, verse 15, really the same as Matthew. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Ramah is, uh, or was about five or six miles north of Jerusalem. And according to Jeremiah 40 and verse 1, the captives of Jerusalem and Judah were gathered at Ramah on the way to exile in Babylon. So again, we have this idea of the exile in the context. Rachel was Jacob's wife, one of Jacob's wives. And remember, Jacob's name was Israel. And so 
Rachel then is the ideal mother of the nation of Israel. And she is weeping here because her children are being taken away in exile. They're being taken away in judgment. But look at verse 16, the very next verse. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, for your children shall come back to their own country. Now, how would this be realized? It's going to be through a new covenant, Jeremiah tells us. A new covenant would cause Israel to come to saving faith. And so, stop weeping, Rachel, because although your children are no more today, a day is coming when I will save them. Look at Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Look at Jeremiah chapter 32 and 36. We see this again. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in my great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety." And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul." For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promise them. And then look at the end of verse 44. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And of course, this restoration of fortunes is going to come about again through a new David, the Messiah. Look at Jeremiah 33 and verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Skip down to verse 23. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? 
Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I had not established my covenant with the day and night and fixed the order of the heavens and the earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the house, over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Now at the end of our gospel, the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to say in Matthew 26, 26, as Jesus is instituting the, the Lord's Supper, really the last Passover, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant with his blood. And those who are part of this covenant know the Lord. Right? If, if you're part of the new covenant, you know the Lord. Your sins are forgiven. Our iniquities are remembered no more. The Lord has put the fear of Him in us that we will not turn away from Him. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that the Lord has entered into covenant with us, that these promises of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 have been granted to us. We've been grafted into the new covenant through Jesus the Messiah, through faith in Him. But that doesn't mean that the promises to Israel and Judah will, won't still be fulfilled. The days are still coming when Yahweh will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And by quoting really the only sad verse in all of Jeremiah 29 to 34, Matthew is saying, yes, these, these children have been killed. This is sad. Yes, Herod killed the children of Bethlehem, but the one who brings salvation and the new covenant is here. And so Matthew is pointing us again to Jesus and all that he represents and all that he will do as the king of the Jews, as the inaugurator of the new covenant, as the new David and the new Moses. And there's one more providential event that he points us to, and that's number three, the return to Nazareth. And so we're back in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 19, the return to Nazareth. Verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Again, Joseph obeys exactly. The angel says, rise and take, verse 20. And verse 21, he rose and took. The angel said, go to the land of Israel. And Joseph took the child and his mother to the land of Israel. But he hears that Archelaus, who really followed the footsteps of his father, a, a wicked and an evil ruler, when he heard that he was reigning, he thought it wise to go back to Nazareth. Remember, we learned from Luke 2 that Nazareth is where the Messiah was from. That, that That's where um, Joseph and Mary had formerly lived. Luke chapter 2, verse 3 says, when they... 
They went to be registered, each to his own land. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And so Joseph and Mary were originally from Nazareth. They had to move to Bethlehem. They had to go to Bethlehem to be registered. They had the baby in Bethlehem when they arrived to be to, for the census. And at the end of Luke chapter 2, verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town, Nazareth. And so that's where Joseph and Mary were originally from. Luke doesn't record the journey to Egypt and back to Nazareth. And Matthew doesn't tell us that Joseph and Mary were originally from there, but each author includes what's important for their purposes. And for Matthew, the fact that Jesus ends up in Nazareth is significant because it fulfilled something again that the prophets had spoken. Verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this quotation, this this quotation formula is slightly different than the other ones. This is the only time that Matthew introduces a quotation with the plural, the prophets. He also uses a different format that most likely means he isn't intending a direct quote here. He's, he's intending to quote the prophets indirectly. And actually, no known scripture or prophecy says that anyone would be called a Nazarene. You, you won't find he will be called a Nazarene anywhere in the Old Testament. In fact, Nazareth didn't even exi- exist in Old Testament times. Nazareth is, is not in the Old Testament. And so what is all this that he would be called a Nazarene? What's all this about? And there's basically two views here on these scriptures. One is that this traces back to the fact that Nazareth is a despised place. Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene is a lowly title. It, Matthew, remember John chapter 1 verse 46, Nathaniel says to his brother Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, and Philip says, come and see. Now this view fits well with the with all the prophecies that speak of the Messiah being despised and rejected. And so the first view is that, that this traces to the idea that Nazareth is kind of like a, a lowly town, a despised town, a small town, uh, a, a town that people would look down upon. And so when you're called Jesus of Nazareth, it, you are despised and lowly. And there's many prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah being despised and lowly rejected. The second view is that Nazarene ties back to a Hebrew word, netzer. And the Hebrew word netzer kind of has the same consonants. It actually has the same consonants as Nazareos. And so the, in, in Hebrew, in Matthew's day, wasn't written with any vowels. And so it's just the, the N, Z, and the R consonants. And so netzer is actually the Hebrew word for a branch. Now, Matthew has already pointed to us to this in Isaiah 11, verse 1. Remember Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, that's Netzer, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
We already read earlier this morning uh, Isaiah 11 to verse 9. Let's continue reading Isaiah 11, 10 to 16. So here's this idea of a branch. And it could be that Matthew is pointing us to this branch. And so verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, Jesse was David's father. And so this is the, the Davidic line, the, the shoot from Jesse's, uh, from Jesse's stump. And the branch, uh, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We'll skip down to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the rem- the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. In, in other words, there's going to be another exile, another exodus, as the exiles are brought back. He will raise, verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. In other words, the, the nation is going to be reconciled under one leader again. There's no longer going to be a northern and southern kingdom. We've already seen that before. And not only that, but also the, the nations who harass Judah and Ephraim shall depart. In other words, there's going to be no more war. Verse 14, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hands against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. And so there's going to be a highway from Assyria in the same way that the people were brought out of Egypt in an exodus. So the people that are exiled in Assyria are going to be brought back on this day through the Messiah, through the branch. And I think Matthew is really expecting us to understand and to pick up all of these connections. And other prophets had picked up on this idea of the Messiah as the branch. And they used another Hebrew word that also meant branch. And, and they got this word from Isaiah, this other word for branch. And so Isaiah 4.2, just listen to these ones. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And so here's the branch, and he's going to be beautiful and glorious. Jeremiah picks up on this. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 33:15 In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8 Hear now O Joshua the high priest you and your friends who sit before you for there they are men who are assigned behold I will bring my servant the branch. 
and Zechariah 6 and verse 12, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And so Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, He is Son of David, He is Son of God, He is a new Moses, the ruler of Israel, the King of the Jews. He's the inaugurator of the new covenant, and He is the branch. He is the King who has come to save His people from their sins, and He will undo the effects of the fall and establish God's rule once again on the earth. And Matthew wants to see wants us to see all of this by pointing us to these sections of Scripture, that Jesus is the one through whom all that God wants to accomplish on earth in this world, in His world, would be achieved. And so we've seen these three providential events. Three providential events that prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the flight to Egypt, the massacre in Bethlehem, the return to Nazareth. All of these show us who Jesus is and what He came to do. And Matthew's focus, and really the, the, the focus of the Old Testament is, is mostly on Israel because again, Matthew is writing to the Jews and the Old Testament was written for the Jews, but by extension it applies to us as well. We're not excluded from all of these things. The salvation promised to Israel in the New Covenant has been extended to the Gentiles as well. Even the kingdom promises are going to be ours in Christ. We will reign with Christ for a thousand years and then forever we will reign with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. And the salvation of the new covenant promises to us forgiveness of our sins. Again, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four: I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. But it's more than just simply forgiveness that we have in the new covenant. Greatest forgiveness is, it's also transformation. Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant I will make and, and this is the salvation that God gives to us. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask, do you know the Lord? Has He changed your heart such that you delight in His laws, you delight to obey Him, and you despise the sin that you once loved? Do you have a new heart? One that only God can give, a new heart that fears the Lord. And if you do, then praise the Lord. You are part of the new covenant. And if you're here this morning and that's not you, and then I urge you to come to Jesus Christ. The call is to repent. Matthew 3 and verse 2, repent. Turn from your sin and come to Jesus Christ. He alone can save you from your sins. He alone can make you right with God. And in Christ we have all of our fortunes restored. Outside of Him there is emptiness on earth and judgment when we die. But in Him... Our fortunes are restored. We have salvation, the forgiveness of sins, a reconciliation with God that brings us joy in this life. We're going to sing now as we close, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. If He's, if He's yours, if you have Him, then what a blessed assurance that is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for pointing us 
to him through Matthew. We thank you that you've inaugurated a new covenant even with us through him that we are your people and you are our God, that our sins are forgiven, that you've changed us and given us a new heart in Christ and the Spirit has come to dwell within us. And you have caused us then to fear you and and to reject the false gods and the false worships of this world. And you have brought us to love you and know you. We pray that we would rejoice in this blessed assurance that Jesus is our Savior, that he is ours through the new covenant, and that we are his, we are yours. We pray you'd help us to sing in Jesus' name. Amen.